Welcome to Insight Podcast. In this episode, we have Matt Navo, Director of Systems Transformation, Center for Prevention and Early Intervention at WestEd. We'll be asking Matt his take on the current landscape of special education and technology. My name is Shane Pinnell, and co-moderating with me is Jamie Lusatter. Welcome, Matt. We're so grateful to have you on our show today. Thank you. Glad to be here. So we want to open up with a little bit of a game that's going to help us get to know you. And uh, so how it works is I'll say a topic and then all three of us will answer. So the first one, do you prefer a Mac or a PC? Mac. Shane? Yeah, well, it's a bit of a misnomer because a Mac is a PC, but I prefer the (laughs) Mac operating system on my PC. I had a nerd out out on that one. Sorry. Thank. No, I think our listeners will appreciate that. Yeah, I, I definitely run a Mac. So thank you. Star Wars or Star Trek? Star Wars. Jamie? Yes, Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. Saw the this original I... 32 oh. times. Oh my goodness. Nice. Oh yeah. My mom saw it more times than she cares to remember. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah, we actually have this question as part of our interview process in my my tech team. Hmm. And then lastly, this is a more more recent uh, question. Do you prefer in-person or virtual meetings? In-person. Jamie? I'm mixed. Yeah. I, think, I think there's been some efficiencies gained after we got our rhythm. Um, you know, we, we get right to the point and we're on to the next. But I do miss, I do miss seeing people every day, for sure. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. I miss, I miss the in-person meetings, but, um, but also just the, being able to have that quick meeting where we don't have to wait a week to figure out calendars and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the I think having the virtual stuff has been actually, like you said, um, some efficiencies to be gained there. Mm-hmm. I found that I really love um, I've been, I've had more access to parents with the virtual PD that we've been doing. So the reach has gotten much further, and then having them all recorded, not having yes. to figure out who's going to get there to record the sessions, has yeah. been super easy. So I've been a PD production machine the past. Yeah, and one of our one of our recent uh, board meetings, we had I think over eight hundred people watching the board meeting online and we've never had anywhere near mm-hmm. that number attend a physical mm-hmm. board meeting. So there's definitely some benefits, but I miss seeing people in the, in really seeing them face to face. I actually, yeah, I had a, I actually had a nightmare last night that we were having an in-person board meeting and nobody was wearing their masks. And I went outside like having a panic attack, <laughs> but oh my gosh, this is <laughs> school's about to open. That was my, that was my teacher nightmare dream. That That's a, a sign that it's almost time. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for playing. And now on to our first topic. So, Matt, in reading through your bio, I see that you have a very extensive background in education. Can you tell us a few of the roles you've held and what your current work is focused on? Sure. Yeah, I've held a a number of different roles, but the the ones that have been uh, most influential for me in terms of what I'm doing now uh, started when I was... um, I taught uh, four, five, six special day class combo uh, in my second year of teaching. That led to a myriad of um, positions at various levels uh, from elementary, junior high, and high school in uh, special education. And then in the uh, later years, I served as a director of special education uh, in Sanger Unified School District, which is a small district in Central California. And that led to uh, an opportunity to serve as superintendent. And, um, and from that, the, I had several opportunities through governor appointments. Governor Brown had several commissions that he needed a uh, school administrator, uh, preferably a superintendent who had uh, extensive experience or at least minimal, some, some experience in special education. And I fit that bill 
And um, so I had an opportunity to serve through three Governor Brown appointments, which then led to an opportunity to, to work with WestEd. So my current work is Director Assistive Transformation, which means basically my work is divided into a th uh, thirds. A third of my work, I work with the state of California and various roles and responsibilities um, uh, working at the, uh, the state level. And then the another third of my work is national through the National Center on Systemic Improvement, which works with various uh, states across the country and uh, with a specific focus on working with special education directors in those states. And then a third of my work, uh, which, is, which is my most uh, favorite work, is working directly with districts uh, helping them improve their systems to support students who are at risk, um, most often struggling to learn. And that leads me to, again, working with an emphasis on students with disabilities. Nice. Uh, so when you were teaching, uh, you said four, five, and six, was that a uh, mild, moderate class or was that a moderate or severe class? You know, I taught both uh, mild, okay. moderate, and mod, severe. I, I worked at in Rainmaker, which is a um, uh, severe uh, for students with severe um, disabilities as well as physical disabilities uh, for a period of time. So I had the opportunity to do both and 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 loved it. Had my principal not said to me in my first year teaching, uh, I was teaching fifth grade, and he said, "Hey, I, ha I have a great uh, gig for you." And I said, "Really?" And he says, "Yeah, it'd be great for a second year teacher. You really learn a lot." And I said, "Oh, okay, let's do it." And I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> that what he was telling me was he, he basically said, oh, there's, there's only um, like about six kids in the classroom. I said, oh, fantastic. I'll take it. It was a special education. <laughs> uh, oh, so special you did not day. train to be a special ed teacher? You no, I went. Landed, it, landed said, there? He said, you'll have to go back to school. And I said, I'll go back to school. And I ended up getting my master's in special education. But had he not asked me to do that, I probably would have not had the opportunity. And had he explained it or had I asked any more questions, I may have shied away from it. <laughs> yes. So, you know, it's uh, funny how those things work out where, yeah. you know, it, it ended up changing the course of what I probably would have saw myself doing. Yeah. Great. Thank you. That's really cool. Yeah. I, you know, I think that's something leaders really need to remember is that questions like that or just noticing a talent can really change the course of someone's life in a, in a powerful way. That's super interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if it was talent or the fact that he, no one else was brave enough right. to do it. Because, <laughs> 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 you know, teaching, uh, I was teaching in 92. Mm -hmm. So that's when I started. And, uh, no, you know, they were self-contained. The inclusive opportunities were minimal. Right. Um, and we, there wasn't a lot of uh, focus on improving yeah. outcomes. So you were kind of on your own. And mm -hmm. uh, as a 22-year-old, uh, that, was, that was not easy. That was not easy, but I loved it. Yeah. Hmm. That's awesome. So I think, you know, we're, we're going to spend a lot of our time today talking about special education and then the relationship with technology. To get started, can we do some definitions, um, specifically IEP and then FAPE? I think it'll be important for our listeners and um, Shane and I to have a really clear understanding of your definitions along with our working definitions. Sure, sure. So IEP, uh, Individual Education Plan, that is the plan at, that which is responsive to the IDEA, which is the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, uh, that guaranteed the right to a free and appropriate public education for all students with disabilities. So because of FAPE, uh, which guarantees the IEP is the mechanism at which we track the ability for a district to provide FAPE. 
So, and FAPE is uh, really a hot issue, or at least uh, continues to be over the last couple of years, because um, school districts, at least in California, the law as it related to IDEA, defined FAPE when people said, what does that mean in terms of services? It was defined as the floor, not the ceiling, a basic minimal uh, opportunity for students to be included and to achieve positive outcomes. In the reauthorization that transitioned to uh, really educational benefit, meaningful educational benefit, which translates into a new bar for FAPE, which uh, when local implementers try to um, define that, it really means that the student is meeting his or her IEP goals. So in the past, you could say, you know, you could write a goal and a student over multiple years could struggle to meet that goal and you would be in compliance with FAPE. You are no longer in compliance with FAPE if a child repeatedly fails to meet the goal and there's no adjustment to the IEP plan to make sure that you're addressing the needs. So those two things are working uh, hand in hand right now and, and particularly are, are challenging both in volume of the IEP and the legalese that the IEP has taken on over the course of many years and FAPE as it raises the bar from the ceiling to meaningful educational benefit uh, being, being the, the way in which we might uh, translate the meaning of FAPE. Yeah. Oh, thank you for that. You know, yeah. The special education world, it's one where we're hyper-focused on right now. I know that I've heard, I've heard uh, the words FAPE thrown around a lot as they relate to distance learning is just how are we going to provide that, uh, what is it, free and appropriate? Free and appropriate public education, is that yes. what it stands for? Okay. Yes. How are we going to provide that in this distance learning sure. world? Uh, so it's, it's definitely a big challenge for us. You know, we're finding trying to find ways uh, to best support students. And the very nature of special education, it's about individual needs. We find ourselves often looking for generic one-size-fits-all solutions, especially in IT, where we have to support 20,000 students. It's, it's very difficult for us to have those individualized solutions. So what do you see as some of the most pressing challenges to solve in this space? Sure. This is a really challenge right now in, in virtual. It was a challenge in person yes. to really figure out what are the best educational opportunities that leverage technology or um, and, and leverage programs that can help students meet and attain their goals. And part of the challenge right now for teachers is that and for the system as a whole is the virtual world has just is now blown up tenfold from what it was just a year ago because of our current circumstances and in trying to find ways to creatively engage students in such a way that they're working uh, towards their goal the teachers the educator the, the the educational practitioner can't keep a child it's very difficult to keep a child who may have a t uh, an attention issue or may have a the inability to attend to a task for a very long yeah. period of time engaged virtually with them trying to bridge this what was in person and make it a virtual in person so yes. in, in understanding that you're limited in your ability to do that and that you're going to have challenges particularly with younger students who may have impulse control issues and or may have circumstances that really prevent them from um, 
being meaningfully engaged in a virtual conversation with multiple students online or yeah. even multiple, even one-on-one -on -one with a teacher for a long period of time, you can't uh, use any of the strategies that you may have used with children like hand over hand or total physical response. You know, the, all of these things that ABA is even going to be challenging for school psychologists in, in a virtual world. What is ABA? It's a process like where if I said, good morning, Shane, Yeah. how are you today? And then I was like, okay. And then Matt would do it. Like I would model and then the student would go. So it's a, it's oh. a process of, yeah, it's a process of kind of showing how to interact socially okay. as well as other tasks. Yeah. yeah. Applied behavioral therapy. There yeah, there we go. Yeah. yeah. So that will be real challenge. So the challenge now for teachers and educators is, uh, is, is how much time do we, do we, um, utilize virtual to help mitigate these goals and what programs and in what way do we do that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We've seen some challenges with, we have our special education teachers who are rostered to their students. So it's kind of easy to get them together, but it's, it's becoming, uh, it's proving to be a challenge to get the instructional aides into the room, the RSP teachers into the room to get all of those things together virtually. You know, we're used to just kind of walking into the classroom and providing the support when needed, but we, we definitely sure. see some challenges. It's, you can't just walk down the hall anymore. Now we have to schedule things and set them up and make sure the software works. And, you know, and then on the, on the students end, uh, we're relying on the parents a lot um, or the students a lot to kind of figure some of these, some of these things out as well. It's, it's definitely been a challenge. Well, I think you make a good point, Shane, because that 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 is another that is a ba major barrier. So we're asking parents to, in general, help support the teacher because the students aren't going to be online for an extensive period of time. There's going to be a lot of work that they have to do on their own. Uh, that's compounded for a, a a parent with a child uh, who has a mild, even mild to moderate, or or even a severe, even more. Yeah. Uh, disabilities that they have to be, we're asking them to help address the technology issues that may, may occur. We're asking them to um, support and extend the learning that may have been done with the, with the our resource teacher or the, yeah. uh, the general education teacher. So there's a lot on the shoulders of parents as well to help make this work, which is they're not, they're not equipped Right. Uh, in all cases. And um, this is going to be a heavy lift for the whole system as a whole. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's true of general education too. It's, but it probably exacerbated in special education because of the, that, you know, parents definitely don't have that specialized training. Yeah. So we've had our definitions on, and thank you for that. We've also talked about kind of what are our, what are our most pressing challenges. So let's move into what can we do with this? What can we specifically do this with our technology teams in education? I think this particular time that we've been moving towards for the last, since 2015, is an opportunity, especially right now, for those that haven't taken advantage of it, to include uh, educational technology and and those that are in districts responsible for the um, the technology infrastructure and for supporting teachers in their work. This is the best time ever. If you're not, if they're not involved, we're missing the opportunity. Yeah. In 2015 the state of California published the special education task force report. And that report had several sections to it that called for the state to do work. If we were going to improve outcomes for students with disabilities and all students, but with an emphasis with students on students with disabilities, that we needed to do certain things. Two of the call outs in that report were in the evidence-based practices section of that report. One was a call out for multi-tiered systems of supports, which the state has, has pushed across 
through the SUMS initiative uh, that's done by Butte and Orange County. They're responsible for supporting uh, school districts in their implementation. And the other was universal design for learning, an instructional framework that that would help uh, helps bridge the gap between uh, for students that have that are struggling to learn. And it helps teachers think about how they engage and, and enter the instructional world differently. It helps them think about how you engage, have let students express their work. And it, it, it's there's never a better time for universal design than there is right now because teachers are uniquely challenged by how do we design a lesson plan that's going to meet the needs of all learners when I'm in a virtual space. I don't have a lot of time to do that. But the connection with technology in the MTSS world is that you can't do it without some data literacy. So you, in order for a district to be able to meet the needs of, as a system, it's got to be able to identify what it wants to improve across the system, across the district. And then it's got to be able to produce the data from the school sites to tell it and inform itself as to whether or not they're moving the needle in the right direction. So as districts show up on the dashboard for across the state for challenging outcomes when it comes to improving the learning of students with disabilities, essentially what it's saying to the system is if you're not able, you need to improve this area with regards to achievement. So for example, you might have students with disabilities not performing well for math and you need to be able to ask yourself as a system. So with that being said, what is the data that is going to tell you at the elementary, at the middle school, and at the high school that you're actually improving the outcomes for students with disabilities in the area specific to mathematical computation? Well, if you were to ask districts what data they have, chances are you have different data being collected in multiple ways at different sites across the system, both in the elementary, middle, and high school. The technology world, the, the, those responsible in districts for the infrastructure of technology and also uh, responsible for the data analytics of the district and the coordination of data, how can you have that conversation without them not at the table? Yeah. So right now, what districts are challenged with is they're having this conversation and one of two things is happening. Either technology is not included in the conversation until after they've made a decision only to find out that technology will tell them um, the decision that you, you made, we cannot support. Right. Or they try to include them in the conversation and and they include the wrong the wrong composite of the team that is formed so maybe they have somebody from technology or the department is completely devoted to technology infrastructure and making sure that systems are talking to systems but they really don't have a training or an understanding as how to do the data analytics and right. and they certainly you know are challenged with multiple platforms being used to collect data uh in such a way so I think tech, if technology is uh, those responsible for being able to have the systems connect and understand what systems are best for the district and what can be used, if they're not at the table right now, we're missing an, a conversation. And the way to find out, I always ask this question of a district when I'm, when I'm meeting with them, I will ask them, what is the most important piece of data you'd like to improve in your district? Nine times out of 10, you'll have the superintendent or the superintendent's cabinet members say that literacy. Of all the things we need to be able to do, we need to be able to teach our students to read. Because if they can't read by the end of third grade, the life gets really difficult. Well, for students with disabilities, that gets really challenging. And if you were to ask them, great, that's, that's perfect. 
an honorable thing to improve. We have to do that. How many students in third grade today are reading at grade level? It's crickets. They can't, they can't tell you. They can tell you, but they got to go dive into the system to get it. And it might take them a couple of days through Excel spreadsheets and asking teachers to turn th certain things in and asking uh, technology to produce a document. Several weeks later, they might be able to tell you. But the system can't tell you really well or very easily how many students with disabilities are, on, are reading at grade level today in third grade. You ask yeah. most of the districts in California that question, they wouldn't be able to answer that question. Well, and, and Matt, I'd, I'd say that if you were asking that question, it would, be, it would be difficult to find that information and that information would be stale. Absolutely. You're absolutely correct. So right now, what we've asked the states and the districts to do since that report was produced in 2015, they haven't been able to do. And I would argue that we haven't been able to do it because we haven't been intentional about having building the capacity of the people in the technology side of the house and making them part of the conversation. They're part of the conversation after we've had the conversation, which makes their job really difficult. Yeah. They need to be at the table with CNI brainstorming and, and, and contributing to the discussion about how do we do this. Yeah, I'd also like to argue, though, that I think that there's a lot of skill-based training that needs to happen across the board. If, if distance learning and, and this pandemic didn't, you know, there's so much that was exposed and Matt, as you said, opportunities that have come up, um, but we have to find ways to raise the skill levels in all departments across our district. Because I, I suddenly, you know, hearing you talk about, you know, this definite gap that exists for our districts. And I, I was thinking about the question you asked. And I was like, oh, as a member of cabinet, how would I answer that? <laughs> and, and then just realizing that there is a, a great need, but the burden of responsibility on the tech department, I think is so challenging. I'm feeling right now, essentially, school can't start without my team. And that's, that's usually true each year. But again, if they lost internet, school could go on. If systems went down now, school does not happen. Um, and so I would, I would like to find some way that we could look at, you know, reorganization, but also adding skills to each department that maybe there's, maybe data analysis needs to be part of a lot of the job descriptions. Absolutely. And some, some training on that. Yeah, you, Jamie, you hit a, hit a perfect point. I think if we don't build the capacity mm -hmm. of the system as a whole to understand what it needs to do, specifically when it comes to improving outcomes based on the re reality that you need data to do that, mm -hmm. and if we don't prioritize in some way students with disabilities on top of that conversation, then, um, then we're going to miss, you know, mm -hmm. we miss the yeah. great opportunity we have um, yeah. to do this work. It is possible the uh, the retail world or the commercial world they they know all of their information. They've asked those questions and they've poured money into answering those questions for themselves because it's a competitive advantage. Correct. And, and we just struggle at, at we struggle at the school level or the district level. You know, I don't I don't have the budget for a a data scientist, but I kind of need a data scientist. You know, it's funny you say that. When we started the work in my previous district, we um, really needed to be able to see data differently. When we went to the technology department to do that, obviously that was a challenge. We hadn't built them to do that work. They were built to make sure that the servers and everything was connecting and when teachers logged in, things were working. And quite frankly, we took that for granted, but that's what they were built to do. When we needed them to, when we needed, and we assumed that because they were technology, they would be able to take all of this and put it into data, data analytics for us. Yeah. Um, that's not, how it worked, we had to go 
And quite frankly, we had to go outside the system to find right. somebody who could do that. But right. it would have been helpful if we had built the capacity of our own team to do that. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, the, the the challenge with going outside your system is you're not building that internal capacity. Correct. Um, so you're not really you're not really raising every department. You're just kind of bringing That's that right. expertise in individually. That's right. So, what are some of the pitfalls? Uh, what should be on our on our radar when we're trying to implement some of these um, these ideas about systems and and how to get them off the ground? Well, I think that we we're running the risk right now. And Shane, when you say uh, systems, are you talking about the, um, just want to clarify, are you talking about the, uh, uh, having the conversation about multi-tiered yes. systems? Yeah. Okay. Well, how do, any type of, any type of systems thinking, I guess, how, how do gotcha. we get that off of the ground? Yeah, I think, uh, so the, 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 the challenge with uh, the systems thinking that I have run into is that people... Uh, in we've been so used to in, in our in our district systems and in our state system. Simon Sinek has a new book right now that really I think articulates the challenges we've had and some of the pitfalls. Um, he it's called the Infinite Game. What he's making the argument of, which I think is really something we as educators are due to ourselves and don't realize we do we do it, is that in our systems thinking work we use language that is uh, infinite language language that talk you'll hear you hear it all the time right now continuous improvement is us yes. as yeah. a you know we need to be an organization we need to with, with the uh, circular we, chart we, yeah exactly <laughs> it's a circular chart that basically describes a journey of learning and a journey yeah. of, of improvement which is great because that's what this a good systems are built on so the fa- the framework of the foundation for, of continuous improvement leads up to you know a multi-tiered system and and so you hear uh, improvement science also is a way to learn, to get better. And, and we use this language that tells the user, um, the people in the system, that this is about growth. This is about opportunity. This is about failing forward. But then we have them play this different game. Mm-hmm. And the game is a finite game of wins and losses, where at the end of the year, the state produces a dashboard. And all of you that are in orange or red are, are losing the game. Yeah. And all of you that are in green and blue are you're winning the game. And so the, the what we do in our system as we translate all of this language and we try to make sense of what happens is the the infinite game language, the language that says we need to get better and we need to work together to get better. That language and that message begin to disappear because what happens is the focus is on the game on the game that we're supposed to win. Yes. And so yeah. we, and the caveat to that, and the, 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 what happens is we get short-sighted on how we get there because you have nine months uh, that you have typically have kids with you, at least traditionally, you have nine months of school and you would typically see that test show up in your district sometime in March. So you figure you got maybe seven, six or seven months to actually move the needle. And so people don't have time for this this conversation that tells them they got to get better over time. The conversation that they're interested in is I got to win right now. Yeah. I would say that's, that's not even necessarily tied to testing either. I, I know I've often, I've often had the feeling of uh, when we're talking about systems improvement work, but what about the kids right now? Like we have, I have, there's kids in these seats right now that, that need something, you know, how do we, how do we address their needs? It's so immediate sometimes. And you know, when you have, a, when you have a, a sophomore or a junior who's who's failing, you know, what what are you going to do to solve that problem right now? Because we can't wait three years; he'll be he'll be out of our schools. That's right. So there's this real tension between yeah. 
uh, and this dilemma in the system where you've got a system that's trying to teach itself and prove itself. And at the same time, you've got these immediate needs that have to be answered. And we struggle in our system structures to do both of those at the same time. So how do we fix that? <laughs> yeah. So part of it is What's being, the magic pill? I think part of it is defining the systems need to define clearly what is what are the mechanisms that uh, lead us into a game that is uh, fi- that is more finite? How do we do that work? And then mm. what is the work and language that we use and what is the game that's infinite? So when you oh. think about improving outcomes for students with disabilities and you think about the vision statement and the mission statements of districts, and you ask yourself, okay, so w- when we think about our vision and mission statements, which, which oftentimes most people in most districts probably don't, don't know what the, they are, they can't articulate them unless they go to the written paper where it is. Yeah. But we should be able to say that language, how does, what does that translate to in how we behave with one another and how we interact with kids? So what is the behavior between teacher and students that tells us that, that that's the vision that we're trying to accomplish? But at the same time, on the other side of the pyramid, what do we, got, what do we have to do right now, today, tomorrow, this week to help, move, to help move the needle in the places we need immediate action? So they have to separate in their minds a little bit of the system is every day we're on both games. But this is where we have space to, to really learn and do some really deep thinking. And this is where, you know what, we're, we're really, yes, we need to learn. Yes, we need to think deeply. But you know what, we can't, we need immediate action. So, right. and technology can, can solve both of those problems. They can not solve them, but they can address both of them. They can put the, the district on a journey of, how do we continually get better at, in terms of our infrastructure and how do we um, support teachers' needs in terms of what they want to improve with students and how can we best utilize the structures we have to do that better and more efficiently? And at the same time, helping a district say, so what is the data you need today um, and how can we best put ourselves in a position that you can produce that for you on a regular basis? Yeah, yeah, thank you. There's so much to unpack with all of that. I find I find when I'm always thinking about my little world in technology and building systems and structures, I like to think about myself as a as a leader of the team and how can I be number one, how can I be dispensable? That's kind of my new mission. Like how can I make it so people around me don't need me? And my analogy is always that I don't want to be the firewall of my team. I don't want all information to have to pass through me with approval. I don't want you know, questions to have to run through me, like what can I build out for everyone so that they can work efficiently and um, and more more report back to me or just, you know, if they do have questions, you know, be approachable. And I'm always interested in, you know, the sustainability side. But when we're thinking about, um, you know, these systems and structures specifically for student outcomes related to our special education students, what are some ways, some things our technology team listeners can do right now? What are some kind of concrete actions um, on the finite side of the conversation that we can make some improvements in? Sure. I think there's two things. One is uh, the way that they guide the district in helping it organize itself to make efficient and effective decisions. So what I think of comes to mind is a quality assurance process, a process where the technology departments can can organize itself so that what is it, what are the steps that you have to take as a teacher, as a school to, 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 what are the questions you have to answer to be able to put us in the best position to support you? 
And what we find right now is that that doesn't often exist. Uh, some type of quality assurance process for steps to getting yourself, getting what you need for your, for your, for your child in your classroom. Most of the time, it's more of a check the box sort of thing. Well, if you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this, but it's not a, it's not a quality assurance of, did you actually perform some type of task in the sense that did you, why is this the most important, why is this technology or this app the one that's going to meet your needs? Um, did you do the, the research on how it, is it compatible with our system? You know, oftentimes what I see is the, the technology becomes Mikey on the cereal box. I just want this technology will take care of it. And as much as they, people in that world want to be able to support you as, as teachers and support practitioners, there are limitations in what their systems can do. And so if they can curate a quality assurance process of some sort that gives the system a way to move itself methodically towards a point at which technology can come and support them, I think that helps. And I've, I've always struggled with, with the tech that's prescribed within an IEP and, and coming to us after the IEP's kind of signed and finalized and knowing that I have to, I have to find a way sometimes to implement things that are, that are really hard to implement. So I've always tried to kind of get in before um, and, and, and try to be there before the IEP sign while well, we can try things out, but we don't, you know, I've never had a formalized process for that. And I think that's, that's definitely a great recommendation. Right. I mean, as I, I think Shane, you're, you're dead on on that because what a quality assurance process could say to uh, an RSP teacher or case manager while they're processing the IEP, they're often, you know, working on those IEPs on a yearly basis. And as they get closer to their annual review, they're really honing in on their goals and objectives and they're really honing in on the ideas about next year uh, so that they can walk into those meetings with parents and be thoughtful about the conversation. There's no reason why a, qual a quality assurance process couldn't say, if, if, if this child's needs are going to be met through some type of technology or resource, that there's a conversation between the case manager and tech yeah. about so that the, the case manager goes into the conversation full well knowing what they're capable of doing. And oftentimes the, the IEP becomes this, um, well, it's a legal document and it becomes a, a huge leverage tool. And when we're talking about the strengths and challenges that students have and trying to mitigate those, those challenges through some type of technology support, it often becomes the tool that says, well, if we write it here, it's going, it has to be done. Right. And yeah. so what that, but that's, that's not realistic because um, it does just because you write something in an IEP would, there would be some thoughtfulness on the side of the team and the parent would assume that this can be uh, accomplished. And when you right. put people in a position where they have to, they, they don't have the infrastructure, they don't have the knowledge, you're, you're really asking a lot of a system to, to react positively, even though they want to, they oftentimes are, they, they can't react as positively as they'd like. Um, but I think the second side to that question, Shane, is for those that are listening that are in tech is being really clear about the questions that they ask. And, and there are three questions in improvement science that I think people in the technology world can anchor to. And one is being really clear about what is it you want to accomplish. So when, so when you're working with those teams and you think about what is it that you want to accomplish for your, your students? So what is it that you're trying to help them learn? 
and and, and being and having people be really thoughtful about that will give people in the technology space a clear idea as to how they can support them. And then how would you measure whether or not it's working? So oftentimes, once they acquire the app or they acquire the, the additional technology support, the, the app or the support is the mechanism for the goal. We assume that if they don't meet the goal, that the app was the the barrier. And we oftentimes assume if they do make the goal that the app was the barrier, but, and sometimes it has nothing to do with it. So being really clear about connecting the measurement to what you're trying to improve, and then being really uh, crystal clear about the change ideas that are associated with this. So what's the process in, in, in the IEP discussion? If this doesn't, if this isn't working, then what are we going to do? Right. And, and not waiting a year to figure out if it's working. So a tech team can do a lot, lot of service to themselves and with the IEP team by saying, you know, if we think that this is going to work, but we don't have any data that says that it is, can we put a trial in the IEP? We're going to collect data for four weeks and we're going to have eight to 15 data markers that say that by using this device, the child increased their performance over time. And if it doesn't, we're going to make a change because oftentimes once they put it in, you're locked into it for a year and that doesn't do a child any good or a parent any good when it's not working. Right. Yeah. That's the sensitivity I'm suddenly facing right now is the process we have to distribute apps or technology to special education students is pretty slow and we want to improve that specifically. We want to, and sometimes it's just, we get the information later or, you know, so streamlining that. So I love that idea of the trial in an IEP. And I love the idea of kind of creating this quality assurance process, whether it's a form or a landing page on our website that lists, you know, our available apps, things like that, that kind of do some training of the IEP teams a little bit on the tech side. Because I don't know if we've approached, at least I personally haven't approached it that way. It's, it's kind of word of mouth, you know, I assigned this one app to this one student in IEP. I know it worked with them. Let me try that again. But kind of having our having a cohesive list of what we have to offer would be a good place to start for me. Yeah, I think if you treat it like an evidence-based intervention uh, and you have the National Center for Intensive Intervention and when you're working with a child with disabilities or, or any child for that matter and they are in, a, they need tier three supports and they need really intensive supports, the idea is that you're not you wouldn't expect that the teacher would just hodgepodge a, a, a curate a number of instructional strategies that they would use. No, they would use a proven, tested, evidence-based practice that says if you use um, Orton-Gillingham, you're going to improve a child's uh, phonemic and uh, awareness. And so if you use read naturally, you're going to improve a child's ability to read fluently. It would, it would seem to me that you would have you would want to begin to build as a technology department through these opportunities in an IEP to strengthen the evidence that if you use this particular app, whatever that may be, it's going to improve. And we have proven outcomes that say that it will. Yeah. I love that. Like being able to catalog that in a sense. And our, our IEP teams may know more than I know, but I, I think just building that one piece out right there would be um, transformative for us. So Matt, you've, you've helped us really think about systems and ways to implement kind of immediate steps for our districts. Of course, they'll take some time to get set up and structured, but they're very concrete and actionable. Are there any other things that you can think of that would help um, district technology teams um, be more supportive in helping the student outcomes for our special needs kids? 
Yes, I, I think one of the things that we we have missed to this point in 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 our state, and we've missed it in our selpas and even within our districts, is the opportunity to form professional learning networks, what we would call PLNs, yeah. the the CCEE, the California Collaborative for Educational Excellence, funds uh, statewide PLNs, professional learning networks, but. I don't believe and I don't have much experience with districts that have formulated a professional learning network of uh, tech industry across districts to come together to say, what are you doing and how are you how are you addressing this problem? Because I'm sure that technology departments across the state in various districts are faced with the same challenges. So the professional learning network, giving them an opportunity and a space to come together to share best practices. Uh, challenges, how they mitigated those challenges, generate some some idea sent as some need sensing, gives them a, a, an ability to go back as a as a group to the respective districts and say, hey, we're all having this problem, or go back to a district and say, this district has a great process map or a flow chart for quality assurance on how teachers um, can get access to the right apps, or the right infrastructure that we support. Yeah. How, would you be interested in that? We definitely have that through um, SITE, which is California IT and Education, formerly known as SEPA. It's, it's a longstanding group throughout the state. Um, so we definitely have that. We have that, but maybe we haven't used it in light of special education enough. It's been more about the keeping the network up, maybe not not as focused on um, on special education. Right. And I, I think that's where that's what I think the conversation. Could, I mean, I'm sure there's a number of conversations that people would benefit from coming together around. But if you were, how, how cool would it be across the state if you had industry tech, technology industry leaders in districts coming together to have a conversation about how to improve outcomes for students with disabilities? I mean, that conversation, I, I can almost guarantee is not happening anywhere in the state of California as it relates to technology. So when you get and think about the power of them becoming together to say, okay, what is what do we know is working? What is working and how do we know it's working? And how can we point the teachers to other opportunities that others have already learned from versus districts that oftentimes in rural, suburban Central Valley, they have one person doing yeah. infrastructure and data analytics yeah. and they're out there alone. Yeah, absolutely. Sounds like we have a, a site um, call to action. Yes, I think that. that- that's pretty tremendous. I mean, yeah. I know personally, I don't think I've talked to the the tech leaders within my SELPA specifically about special ed partnerships. Right. You know, it, it is I get a call that I need to reset a iPad, Apple ID, but building that out and just making those more frequent connections, I think would be pretty powerful. Yeah, definitely. Thank you to our guest, Matt Navo, for sharing all of your insights and giving us some really concrete things we can work on in our tech department teams. We want to give a shout out to our amazing site staff, Laurel Nava, Tuda Bentitao, and Andrea Bennett for supporting our podcast. And Matt, this is where we want to turn over airtime to you for any shout outs, gratitudes, or appreciation you'd like to share. Well, I'd like to give a shout out to you um, and your organization for bringing making this a priority, uh, a prioritized conversation, because I think, you know, students with disabilities, though, and practitioners that serve students with disabilities, they share a similar, um, I think, experience that those listening 
to the podcast might share those those being practitioners in educational technology that oftentimes they are part of the conversation after the conversation has already happened the only way we're going to bridge the gap between the needs that um, teachers have in terms of what they're trying to improve when it comes to the interactions between them and student and what they're trying to help students with disabilities learn the only way we're going to do that is 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 to make sure that that conversation is prioritized both in the district but also prioritized with those that support the district in doing the, the work and and so i this my shout out to you for for making it um making it a priority and bringing me in to share some some thoughts I, I greatly appreciate that thank you so much matt we have one final question for you and this is our would you rather segment so would you rather have more funding for special education or more money for training general education teachers on inclusive practices so i would say uh the latter more money for general education teacher uh te helping support general education teachers with inclusive practices versus if i had to choose more money for special education and i say that I don't know if you want an explanation for that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, please. Okay. <laughs> I feel like it might be tied to how you started in special special education. Yes, it is. It's more tied to the reality of what I lived in my former district. In 1999, when you drove into the town of Sanger, city of Sanger, which is the nation's Christmas tree city, and you uh, drove into the town on the single country road, there was a sign that welcomed you. It said, welcome to Sanger home of the nation's Christmas tree city, which Calvin Coolidge anointed it as the gateway to the giant Sequoia did, Sequoias um, during his administration. But right above that sign, you would have read something completely different. It would have, it, you would have read, welcome to Sanger home of 400 unhappy teachers. And that sign stood as a welcome mat to the city of Sanger for about two years, as I, rem as I recall. So the Sanger Unified, being my former district, was basically anointed in 2004 as one of the worst districts in the state of California. Special education identification was above the average, uh, 12, 13, 15 percent, I think, at one time. By the end of the journey, and when I say end of the first journey, uh, around 2010, Sanger Unified was anointed as one of the top turnaround districts in the state. It was uh, nationally recognized for its EL and uh, graduation rates, and it had lowered its special education uh, ident identification to about 8%. Only was done because we had uh, prioritized building the capacity of general education teachers to do the, the instruction um, that they so desperately wanted to be able to provide, but didn't have the resources um, or the, the understanding and knowledge to do it. So that's why I say that. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for listening to the Insight Podcast. Please join us next time.